0: Sonia Kennebec spent years covering the paranoid world of government whistleblowers. But nothing prepared her for the secrets in her new film, Enemies of the State. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. Sonia Kennebeck was born in Malaysia and grew up in Germany, where she started her career directing television documentaries and investigative reports. She moved to the U.S. and had a breakthrough in 2016 with her film, National Bird. It profiles three U.S. military veterans who became whistleblowers about the government's program of drone killings. One of them is Daniel Hale.
1: Nobody ever thinks about speaking out um, against the government who's worked for them and hasn't considered what the possible consequences are but I don't dwell on them because I don't, I don't want it to affect my voice. I don't want it to silence my words or to curtail my speech. I generally feel like they don't, they being the government, they being the Justice Department, they shouldn't hold that power over me. This ominous threat that they'll go after me in the same way that they've gone after so many people, especially since 9-11. This
0: summer, Daniel Hale was sentenced to 45 months in prison under the Espionage Act, five years after National Bird came out. You can read more about his case in an article linked in our show notes. National Bird won the support of Wim Wenders and Errol Morris as executive producers. It played at the Berlin and Tribeca Film Festivals and won the Hour Documentary Film Prize. In our interview, Sonia talks about National Bird and the latest developments for Daniel Hale. Then we move to speaking about her new film, Enemies of the State. The seed of that project was first planted while she was making National Bird. She read about the case of Matt DeHart, a former U.S. Air National Guard intelligence analyst who was being prosecuted in a murky case brought by the U.S. government. DeHart was a member of the hacktivist group Anonymous, He claimed to work with WikiLeaks as a courier for leaked government documents. In 2010, law enforcement officials raided DeHart's Indiana home on allegations of child pornography. They confiscated his computers, and DeHart was later held in U.S. detention, where he claims he was drugged and tortured. When he was released, he still faced further prosecution. At one point, he explored moving to Russia. Then he and his parents fled to Canada to seek political asylum. DeHart's father, Paul, is interviewed extensively in Enemies of the State. No one who hasn't been through this would ever understand this. They would say, you know, you're a retired Air Force officer. You're a pastor of a church. You're just this average American person. Now you're driving your son to the Russian embassy. What's that all about? Of course, the FBI would say, well, you're you're a mole. But who are you going to go to? Where can, you, where can you go to protect yourself from the United States of America? If the United States of America has you in their crosshairs and you think it's for something that you didn't do, but they're going to they're gonna come after you anyway, where do you go? Enemies of the state has many twists and turns. Normally on this podcast, I try not to reveal spoilers, but this time I can't avoid them for the questions I want to ask Sonia. So before we go any further... I'd recommend you watch Enemies of the State. You can find it on VOD platforms such as Amazon or iTunes. Go ahead, pause the podcast, watch the film, and I'll wait. Okay, are you back? The film is a mind bender, am I right? Sonia and her producer, Enos Hoffman Khanna, spent years trying to unravel the case of Matt DeHart. They started filming after he and his parents had their case for Canadian asylum rejected in 2015. The family was deported back to the U.S., and Matt took a plea deal on two charges of receiving child pornography. He was sentenced to prison for 90 months. Many people who closely followed his case thought the pornography charges were a bogus cover-up to persecute his work for Anonymous. He was supported by the Courage Foundation, that fundraises for the legal defenses of whistleblowers such as Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning. In the film, Sonia interviews Professor Gabriella Coleman, who studies Anonymous and followed DeHart's case closely.
2: Studying Anonymous already felt like being part of an exciting spy story. There was just a lot of mystery and mystique and paranoia in the study of Anonymous. But the Matt to Hart case just bumps that up to a whole different level.
0: Sonia and her producer Enos were left with many questions. What was on that hidden thumb drive that Matt and his family claimed the government was seeking? What was the basis for the charges of child pornography? What happened to Matt when he was in detention and claims he was tortured? For years, Sonia and Enos tried getting government officials to speak without success. Then, near the end of production, they gained access to an investigator and prosecutor on the child pornography case in Tennessee and uncovered evidence that shed new light. Here's the investigator, Brett Kniss.
2: According to the second victim, Matthew DeHart, under the uh, alias of Matthew DeMarco, drove down to Tennessee to meet with the second victim. He snuck out of the house and went down the street. Matthew DeHart picked him up, took him out for dinner, took him to a gun range in another town, and gave him an Adderall and provided him with a beer. It's a classic example of grooming of, of the victims.
0: In October 2019, Matt DeHart was released from prison, and Sonia was set to interview him at his parents' home to finally ask him questions directly. In our conversation, Sonia talks about her winding path to report the case. I started by asking her how she got into the world of whistleblowers.
1: I've actually always been interested in national security stories. um, And it goes back to my times when I was studying in Washington, D.C. I I had a scholarship um, to do an exchange here, you know, coming from Germany and going to Washington, D.C. And I arrived just a few um, weeks before 9-11. And so um, I was actually in D.C. and in fact, at the Pentagon the day after because I was interning with NBC News at that time. So I yeah, I was I was very close to, um, you know, what happened on 9-11. And I also had four friends in New York who survived the World Trade Center attacks. So um, I think a lot of my work goes back to that experience. And after um, yeah, 9-11, I really wanted to understand more about the background, um, you know, of, of the attacks and so on. And I actually studied international affairs um, with that in mind, and I focused a lot on, on security policy.
0: Um, and so that establishes where your interest uh, comes from. How did you actually start uh, meeting the people who became the figures in National Bird?
1: So, you know, finding these drone whistleblowers was was actually very challenging, um, because at that time, when I started the research in, in early 2013, that was, um, you know, before the Snowden revelations, that was before anyone from within the drone program actually spoke out publicly. And it it just started first for me with curiosity because I I had read about military drones and I was interested in a technology, but I, I thought it was strange that, you know, drones had already at that time been been used for over 10 years and there was so little information in, in the public domain, um, you know, it's, 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 so you know few academics were writing about it you know no one from within the drone program would you know like widely speak out about their experiences and that was really my goal to to find people who could you know speak out from the inside and then also of course very importantly the victims and survivors of of you know drone strikes and um i first found my lead character um, heather Um, i actually found her on the internet, which is kind of strange because I, I always tell, you know, younger filmmakers and journalists like you have if you want to do original research you have to go outside. Um you have to um you know do field research and you know go and meet people Um, But the way I I found her was that I had seen on Facebook a photograph of a young woman and she covered up most of her face and you could only see her eyes. And she she was holding a a sheet of paper and it said something like, "Um, not everything you hear about the drone program is true. I know what I'm talking about. And, you know, from her eyes, I could see it was a very young woman. So I was wondering does she know about military drones? And um, someone else had posted it. So I actually did detective work on social media, on the internet. I was cross-referencing people and see, you know, where are they based? And and through that, I um, I eventually found my first lead character, Heather, who had worked with military drones, because I recognized her eyes on a profile photo. And I reached out to her and she was... Um, She had just left the military, was in rural Pennsylvania, and I went and met her.
0: Heather monitored drones remotely, watching the effects of their bombs by camera.
1: When you watch someone in those dying moments, what their reaction is, how they're reacting and what they're doing, it's so primitive. It's really raw, stripped down death. That's what it is. This is real. Like this isn't, it's not a joke. I have specific memories of many of them that I know I killed, but it's so messy and like they don't report it down to us who we killed. Maybe we killed our objective, maybe we killed a guy who we thought was our objective. You don't know. And then I found um Daniel Hale, um, my my second um American lead character, whistleblower. Um I met him at a um peace protest. And then the third um whistleblower, Lisa Ling, I met her at um a a veterans convention. So um those other lead characters I actually found through through ground, you know, and field research.
0: And what was it like winning their trust they they were in a lot of legal jeopardy um i mean D- daniel hale has gone to prison as well uh, i want to ask you about in a minute um but you're a relative newcomer filmmaker you're uh you don't have uh an organization behind you um or anything like that so how did you win their trust
1: it was yeah it- source protection you know has always been very important to me, and the way I started in doing you know a film about military drones was with a lot of research so when I first met Heather and then later on you know Daniel and Lisa, I had already um you know put together um a folder you know full of research, and I had you know just done you know substantial reading and investigating at that time so they saw that I, you know, I didn't come into this, you know, um, you know, this research sort of naively, and without, um, yeah, a lot of a lot of background. And in fact, I actually never studied film. I I, I studied um, international affairs and, and politics. So I come from the content, and um, and I think that was very important in, in gaining everyone's trust. Because it is a very sensitive area of research and you know, national security, working with whistleblowers. Um, and you, yeah, you have to be extremely cautious um, since, you know, the, the government does try to silence people who speak out about these these type of issues. So, yeah, the the ground research, you know, talking to attorneys from the beginning, I used the first um Um, money that I received for this project um, from uh, ITVS, the Diversity Development Fund, to hire an attorney who specializes on um, First Amendment rights. And I had spoken to whistleblower attorney Jessen Radak to get advice on how to safely discuss these type of um, subject matters with um, whistleblowers and sources. And that was really the starting point of my research
0: so as I mentioned before Daniel Hale uh, one of the three people that you pro one of the three whistleblowers that you profile in National Bird uh was re- uh, recently sentenced to prison under the espionage act for um, uh, f- uh, for taking documents from the US government when he worked for the US government uh your film came out in 2016 his case is now is just been prosecuted now in 2021 20, uh, um, I understand from reading, a Washington Post article about the case. that You'd written a letter um, in his uh, support uh, for for his defense. Can you describe why his case, you know, wound up being prosecuted now, uh, when you know the things that you were documenting were, uh, were taking place many years ago?
1: yeah so um when when I was filming with um Daniel Hale, um a drone program whistleblower, kind of in the middle of production, he was raided by the FBI and at that time it you know it wasn't entirely clear at least not to to me um what was going on And his case um, um you know it was clearly or the raid was um for espionage, and it became. Yeah, it, it became part of the film because we decided with his attorney and with Daniel and my attorneys that we would continue documenting um, his case and continue filming with him. And what was so um, heartbreaking during you know, the production time is that he had, you know, very little information what was going on. You know, these um, Espionage Act investigations are... Secret. Um, obviously, he knows what he himself, you know, had had um, done during this time. But it's, it's, it's a very stressful period, which I know from from other whistleblowers as well, um, because you are in this in this waiting period, and and um, and you know, investigations and prosecutions under the Espionage Act are extremely harsh. Um, each of the counts um, can carry up to ten years in prison. And, um, and Daniel, you know during the time that we filmed was waiting for something to happen you know an indictment or or something like that and that didn't happen for many, many years. So the the film came out in, in 2016 and at that time we didn't know how his case would actually you know um, proceed and for the years after, you know not, nothing happened but he was, it you was know, still extremely impacted because um, he knew that he was under surveillance because obviously the FBI had you know um, raided him for, for espionage. Um, but you are in this in this you know kind of holding pattern, and you get you know extremely paranoid. You can't build up trust with people because you know all of your communication is monitored. Um, for for me too, you know, I had to assume. That my communication is monitored because I, you know, I had a lot of contact with him. He was a lead character in, in my film. And, um, and my attorney actually said I would be, you know, he thought I would be raided by the FBI as well. So that is a very you know, difficult um, situation for an investigative filmmaker to, to, to work under. And now, so many years later, um, it was seven years after his initial raid. Um, He actually was um, sentenced now and he 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 was charged, you know, under under Trump and um, because he um, had given documents to another reporter, documents that are very important about the drone war. And yeah, and he was sentenced to three years and nine months in prison.
0: And so just to be clear he had given those documents to a reporter more more recently or those were documents that he had given many years ago
1: um these are documents that he had given many years ago so um yeah it is sort of the the, the time and that's what what i wrote um in my letter you know to the judge that i you know witnessed firsthand and you can actually see it in the film as well how these espionage act prosecutions, you know, impact people because you get so little information. There's a, a, a tremendous amount of time that passes without anything happening. But you know that you are being under surveillance. And, and what I find so problematic as a you know, journalist, I identify as a journalist and an investigative filmmaker, is that whistleblowers provide information in the public interest. And I think especially, you know, in in this time right now where there's so much, you know, secrecy and contradicting information and so on, you know, it's it's really crucial to to have, you know, people from the inside, from the government who, you know, provide more transparency to the public.
0: So let me pivot to uh, enemies of the state. So in 2013, You're beginning work on National Bird and interviewing um, these whistleblowers. 2013 is also the year that Matt DeHart and his family uh, go to Canada to seek asylum uh, to escape the prosecution uh, that he was under. Um, When did you start following the case of Matt DeHart?
1: I heard about Matt Dehart while I was still in production for National Bird. Um, I, I think it was one of my sources um, who had told me about Matt because, you know, in in these you know sort of whistleblower circles, people were you know like starting to discuss his case and said that he actually had worked with military drones and he had served in the military, and that's why I started looking into his case. And I I remember I was reading. Um, a few of his court records back then and I thought oh my gosh this is really complicated um it's kind of strange you know um I mean there are a lot of you know documents that show that he had been um you know investigated and was um yeah interviewed by the FBI but then there was also you know this child pornography case and so my producing partner, Ines hofmann and I, we we decided it would be too um, complex to include him in a film about the drone war. But I never forgot about his case because it, it really is, you know, one of the strangest stories I've ever heard about. And so when National Bird came out, I, I went back, you know, into it and I, you know, and there had been... More information out about his case, but um, in in 2016, so I started really diving deep into the story, and I I spoke to um, my producer Ines, and um, and we you know discussed like can we like do thing like, a film you know about um this case it's, it's very complicated it's a research rabbit hole but it's also you know it's it's intriguing and it has you know all these secrets the national security the government misconduct that i'm interested in um to explore and investigate further so yeah i went on that journey and i have to say though that i had no idea um where our investigation would take us. And in fact, it took us places that I had not imagined um, at the beginning of our of our investigation.
0: So you're making this decision to plunge into this case in 2016. Can you situate me in where his case was at at that point, where he was at physically?
1: Um, in... Well, we started... Um, Really deeply researching in 2017 um, we, we that's when I met with um, his parents um, that's when I really started diving deep into the court records um, with my producing partner and um, and Matt DeHart at that time was actually in prison, so that was um, the starting point they had been um, you know had to return back to the u s they, when I when I first heard about um, the, Met the Heart story, the entire family was in, in Canada, and they were in, in the midst of um, applying for political asylum. And yeah, when we began filming in twenty seventeen, they had, you know, returned to the US, and um, and he actually had been convicted for um, some of the child pornography charges.
0: So as we see in the film Enemies of the State, you filmed extensively with his parents, uh, Paul and Leanne, um, and, uh, and I wonder what that experience was like. You, you're talking to parents who uh, are fiercely committed to their son, who's in prison uh, uh, on charges that are still very hard to substantiate because uh, lots of this case is, um, is not in uh, the public record. You're coming off an experience of filming with very traumatized whistleblowers uh, with whom I feel you have to have a lot of sympathy uh, for. So I wonder if you can describe your mindset when you're, you know, when you're interviewing the, the Dehart family. Um, there are some filmmakers who, if they believed that, that this is an innocent person, could really feel like they're making a kind of advocacy project. Um, to uh, to win attention uh, to the case, and I wonder if that was ever part of your mindset.
1: Yeah, it's um, sort of like yeah, my my um, framework and you know and where I was coming from, I think is is important to the understanding of um, you know how enemies of the state actually starts and begins because. I was at a heightened um, state of paranoia, Um, one of the lead characters of my previous film had been raided by the FBI and was under, you know, espionage investigation and my own attorney said, I have to watch out, I could be raided by the FBI any day. So that's definitely where I was coming from and I had been documenting um, whistleblower and national security stories. And when I first sat down with um Matt Dehart's parents and they had, you know, they told me about their own um military background, um they, they they had um you know top secret clearances themselves and the father had worked with the NSA. So that was the world that I was familiar with. And then they were, you know, making these very strong um you know allegations, and also had documents to to back them up. So so that was really the starting point, and that's what you know is important to understand when you see the film and how it's structured. Because I I wanted to be you know honest to the audience, um, you know, with the journey that I took and that we took as a as a creative team. Um, I did when I you know had that very first meeting with the the Hyde parents. I told them that I'm only going to cover the story, make a film about this, if they are okay with me doing my own independent journalistic investigation. And that's what I, in fact, um, you know, always try to clarify when I approach um, a film and, you know, an, an investigation that I am a journalist, um, you know, I'm, I'm an investigative filmmaker. I don't actually consider myself to be, you know, an, an advocate filmmaker. And um, I think that was crucial um, throughout this, this journey. They agreed to it. And in fact, um, even when the film came out at the end, um, you know, they, they still remembered that this was you know, how we set out into this story and this investigation.
0: So uh, you begin with access to Matthew DeHart's family and to documents that they're sharing with you that tell uh, perhaps a persuasive story from their side. Uh, and I take it during that time, you're trying to get officials in law enforcement uh, to, to talk, whether from the FBI or anyone else, um, and my understanding is it took a long time for you to uh, achieve that, right? I mean, can you talk about that um, that effort and, and how you finally cracked through in some cases?
1: Yeah, this investigation was very complicated and and it went and very lengthy. Um, it was kind of expected because, um, yeah, you know, a story that has, you know, government secrecy and different perspectives and. Um, and yeah the, the FBI involved, um, but also you know a court case about child pornography that also you know for you know, understandable reasons, has you know sealed evidence and, and documents that would be you know we knew it would be very um, difficult to, to invest, investigate. Um, you know I said to the parents we would investigate in all directions and talk to everyone involved. And that's what we really, um, you know, sought out to do. And I did um, my investigation, you know, the research together with my producer, Ines Hofmann-Kenner. And we, you know, we went first through, you know, all the court documents that we had access to. And um, and not just from, you know, the perspective of what the parents and all the activists supporting his, in the Matt the Hart case, were providing us with. But we actually, um, you know, we went into, into PACER and we downloaded, you know, directly the, the court documents that were available. We um, contacted, you know, all the attorneys around this case in Canada and the U.S. And then, of course, you know, the prosecution and the investigators. And they were very hard to get to. And um, we actually only really got access to them. Um, by doing again field research, <laughs> we we went to um, Inez and I. We went to um, Nashville and basically stood outside the prosecutor's office and called them and said, you know, would you like to, um, you know, meet with us? You know, we really want to discuss this case with you. It's very important for us to hear your perspective on the story.
0: And and how deep into this project are you at at this point?
1: So um meeting with the prosecutor, um, when we finally got to them, I'm trying to remember, um, it, it it was it, it was probably not in the middle of production i i I think when we got the interview um that was like some of the interviews we we got, like the actual investigator that was very much at the end of production he um he was extremely cautious. And and the prosecutor as well, we had a first meeting and they weren't, you know, very open. Um, they, they had been quite upset about the previous reporting on Matt Dehart's story. And they felt, you know, that it was very one-sided and um and didn't represent it correctly, and they really didn't, you know want to participate and then you know we told them you can't you know complain that it is one-sided if you are not providing the other perspective and the other side um but the other thing that was went kind of on parallel which we also think um you know was um just helpful in in our discussions with um the prosecutor and the investigator and then also at the end you know led to these you know, real revelations um, and, and the, the further documents and the phone calls that we received where, um, you know, we did we filed our own court motions, Freedom of Information Act requests, you know, public record requests. And these type of research methods, um, they they take a really long time. You know, some of them are still, you know, ongoing and it takes years. So you have to structure your research, you know, in a way that you really begin by you know doing these public record requests or you know begin filing court motions because it's it, it, it takes a tremendous amount of time and what's also important to me you know when doing these these type of investigative um, stories is that you it takes and and that's what people don't see i think you know on on a screen or even in articles is like you know i've said before it is like, um, the film is like the tip of an iceberg. And underneath is this tremendous amount of research. And just for us and for me to get to the point where I can file, you know, a certain Freedom of Information Act request, or public records request and so on, I have to read thousands of pages of court documents. And my producer um, has to read them too. And then we discuss it amongst each other. And, and that's how we, you know develop sort of our, our research plan, but this is really what makes um, investigative filmmaking and investigative reporting so difficult and also very expensive because you need time to dig into these complicated subjects.
0: Well, I want to ask you about the timeline because when I watch the film Enemies of the State, um, I feel like for a long period of the film, I am steeped in the perspective of Matthew DeHart's parents and, and their perspective is reinforced uh, by, by other people that we see in the film. There's a, a judge in this case who, um, who at some point had privileged access to the documents in Matt DeHart's case and expressed skepticism over uh, the government's position. And other journalists, one of whom you interview uh, in Canada for the National Post, had done a deep investigation in this story and, uh, you know, came away feeling like th- there was a lot of skepticism over the, the U.S. government's case. Um, and then because of these things there, you see in the film, there's a little bit of an echo chamber of people who are already predisposed to... Be suspicious of the U.S. government for a lot of good reasons. You know, at this point, the Edward Edward Snowden had come forward, and there had been a lot of other activity um, around uh, whistleblowing, um, which we saw being you know prosecuted incredibly harshly. Um, so there's what well, what we experience in the film is you know a, a sense of reinforcement um, t- towards the idea. That Matt DeHart is being, you know, aggressively prosecuted because of his hacktivist uh, work, and that there's these charges about child pornography that are a little hard to substantiate in uh, in the public record, and feel like they could be um, trumped up charges in order to uh, to prosecute him for his work with Anonymous by midway or three quarters of the way through the, the film there's a lot to feel reinforced uh, by that and I and I take it that that kind of reflects um, your own experience of spending uh, months if not more than a year steeped in one side of the story before you gained access to to other perspectives
1: yes um, the the film, really follows our own journey of investigation. And I think that's important um, in order to understand the access that we had also to um, Matt DeHart's family. And it also um, was the starting point for us in terms of research, because that was the narrative and that was a story that was not just out there, but had been written up in media publications worldwide and, 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 and which also really, you know, spread and simplified the narrative. And the other reason was um, it's, you know, one of the important documents in the film is Matt DeHart's own testimony in, in Canada. So um, this is a very, very, you know, complicated, um, you know, a story that we had to you know put into a, a a narrative structure and i i really wanted to reach that point early where matt the is telling his own story in his own words um, which was the hearing room in canada so we we had to begin this way that they would go to canada in the beginning and then he goes back and retells his story from his own perspective which you know does tell you a lot too about you know how he is um you know presenting himself you know in this in this hearing room you know it's slightly staged you know we we used um actors um who are lip-syncing to the original audio and and that um red thread throughout the film itself i think has has a lot of layers you know like personal perspectives and how you um yeah spin your own story and how you you know, remember, like personal memory, you know, personal perception of what the truth is. So all of that comes across through um, the hearing room. Um, I introduce um, the, the prosecutor and the investigator, at around um, minute 15 in the film. And that is really um, when you hear, you know, v- very strongly, both of them actually are introduced, you know, and, and come in and say that there is an entirely contradictory perspective. And and that was something um, that, yeah, you know, we as filmmakers were also struggling with. You know, first we meet the De Hart family and they're very, emotional and clearly upset about their experiences and you know we are human beings too as filmmakers you know we, I sit in these interviews my cinematographer and um, Torsten Lapp and I we were we were impacted by their testimonies and then um, you know while into our research we finally get to the interviews of you know the prosecutor and the investigator and they actually have a, a similar you know, involvement, like personal involvement in this case and also, you know, like strongly believe in, in their perspective. With, which... with,
0: we should say, a different set of victims. Uh, uh, exactly. Uh, you, uh, you know, two minors um, who uh, the prosecutors uh, believe were sexually groomed by um, uh, by Matt DeHart on, on the Internet.
1: Yes, yes. So the prosecutor and the investigator are really not just speaking for themselves, but they are speaking to the victims of, um, you know, Matt DeHart, child pornography um, victims. So so that is, is another, you know, like very emotional part of the story. And all of a sudden, you know, we're we're dealing with entirely conflicting testimonies. And um, and that is so, really.
0: Let, so let me pause <laughs> yeah. you there because as a viewer, there's a point that I reach in the film where I've been strongly persuaded of one thing: strongly persuaded that the U.S. government was uh, aggressive, over aggressively uh, pursuing uh, someone, uh, you know, engaged in a an act of good of uh, of exposing U.S. government secrets, and then. There comes a point in the film where I realize that um, that there is a different side to uh, to this story and that all this emotional investment that I've put into believing one thing is now being challenged. And as a viewer, it's startling enough to experience that, you know, based on having given up an hour or 75 minutes of your time watching this movie up until that point where it really starts to sink in that something, um, is different. Uh, so that was emotionally upsetting for me, just as a viewer, I'm curious to know how it was for you and Enos a- having invested months in trying to process the story to confront, you know, a, a, a different set of, of, uh, of facts.
1: For us as filmmakers, it was extremely challenging i <laughs> i am not going to hide it, and I'm sure you will hear the same from um Ines as well it was It was very difficult and challenging for all of us on the team you know we we are a small creative team, you know entirely independent and um yeah to to you know invest our lives into um a film and a story that you know turns out to have so many conflicts and contradictions and it also you know took us places that we honestly didn't you know um think we would get to in our you know even in the worst case scenarios like was very upsetting and um and also yeah very very challenging you know for us as a team that Really goes into you know high risk um, national security stories investigations you know where we want to um, uncover government misconduct and social justice and you know we get, they do like shine light on important social justice issues and and yeah and we we do you know believe in the government. Um, you know, mistreating people because we've seen it firsthand. We've seen, you know, harsh prosecutions. We know in American jails and prison how people, in particular people of color, are being, you know, really badly mistreated. So, um, you know, that's, that was like the, the, the starting point, you know, like con- some of, you know, the, you know, conspiracy theories, you know, are, are true and you know, these things happen, um, you know, government torture, um, mass surveillance, you know, the, the drone strikes, you know, election interference, like all what whistleblowers have presented to the public. And so that was the mindset we went into into the story, you know, really uncovering what the FBI's role in this is. And then all of a sudden that one, it's one narrative that the De Hart family had presented and there was really covered and reputable publications worldwide just became a lot more complex and um and was also I mean it and there's not just two perspectives you know and and that was what, what we were like trying to you know dig through and process too as you know filmmakers and journalists you know there's the hard family they're the victims families, there's prosecuting investigators um but then there are you know all these different perspectives of the variety of attorneys that the, the Hart family had. And they don't, you know, they, they have all different narratives um, the judge, of course, but then the National Guard, the FBI, people who hung up, you know, phones on us, the FBI who sa- that said um, no one, you know, no former current um, employee or contractor, you know, should give any assistance to this project. That's a very extreme statement. We we actually had scheduled an interview with the National Guard, and we had booked flights already. And the the weekend before, I think the Friday, we were supposed to be there on on Sunday or Monday. And um, the Department of of um, Defense intervened, and the interview was canceled last minute. So all these things were happening at the same time, and we really had to dig through and process. And that's why the film is, you know, structured in this way, too, because it's I think it's important for the audience to go through the same journey and in fairness to everyone involved um, to really, you know, understand what we were going through as a film team, as journalists and, and go through this process of like questioning your own, you know, beliefs, what you want to believe, you know, um, who you want to believe and really you know, scrutinize yourself and the story. And I really want to, you know, I hope people will come out of this and, you know, understand the value of critical thinking, you know, not to form your own narratives and speculations.
0: Um, So as I wrap this up, I want to ask you about the last scene in the film. You've been following this case for a number of years. Matt DeHart uh, is finally released from prison, so you're going to have a chance to uh, interview him. By that point, you have really heard a different perspective and had evidence presented um, that is very persuasive that the child pornography charges against him were accurate and that there were real victims in that case. Describe for me how you you know, prepared yourself to um, be interviewing him, you know, shortly after he had gotten uh, out of prison.
1: Yeah. Um, so the interview with with Matt DeHart was at the very end of our production. And at that point, we had actually received um, new evidence. And that was throughout the, the, the film because there's so much he said, she said in this case, and a lot of secrecy. What we were always looking for was evidence and documents. And you see a lot of documents in the film. You know, I tried to present everything that I could really verify. And then also um, on screen we are disclosing when we received certain information. Like um, the unsealed the unsealed court documents. Um, that was a turning point. Um, the new evidence with the phone calls and yeah the additional, you know, evidence of, of additional victims. And um, and so that was all when we received it very close to the actual interview with, with Matt DeHart and what was important to us and to me was to present him and ask his perspective, you know, that is like, it's really always, you know, there, there was like the line throughout the film, you know, we're finding new information, we are confronting the people and we're presenting the information, we get their perspective. And so, yeah, like, you know, from attention, like, you know, what you see in the film, like what the questions you have in a, as an audience, that was building up in, in me as well. So I had a long list of questions um, for our independent team, you know, to schedule such an interview is, is a big deal because it's, it's very um, expensive. And um, we had talked not only to um, Matt, but his parents about it, and his attorney who was actually on call that day. And what is so mysterious about... The the interview that never happened is that we filmed with Matt DeHaard the morning of the interview. So we had met with him and his parents the night before. My director of photography um, and I, and um, in the morning we we filmed Matt walking towards his parents' house. So the man you see walking towards his parents' house that is the real Matt. The person's playing Scrabble with his parents. That's the real Matt DeHart. It was actually an, an original, real, you know, verite scene. And um, and then we just took a break. And uh, yeah, we were, um, you know, we wanted to set up for the interview and, you know, give them some, some time while we were setting up. And then I think the interview was around 4 p.m. or so. And then at 4 or 5, I received a phone call from a not anonymous number and it was mad and he said I can't do the interview and we were we were shocked we were rattled <laughs> we had set up the interview for like 2 hours and everything was so you know well organized and planned and it was entirely unexpected and um yeah and I I really have to say I don't I have not received a clear answer yet, to why he hasn't um, showed up. He was talking about an attorney, but we were in touch with his attorney, so it must have been another attorney, possibly. Um, but yes, I think the that scene is a statement in itself, the empty chair.
0: And since the film has come out, played at film festivals in the fall, now it's out uh, in theaters and uh, in, in general uh, release, um, have you gotten any further feedback from either Matt DeHart or his family or, or anyone else kind of pertinent in this case?
1: Yes, um, we actually try to do um, pretty extensive preparation for our, our lead characters. Um, so in you know, with Matt DeHart and his family, um, you know, of course, we all had to process him not showing up the interview so that took you know a while um you know it, it was you know upsetting for for our film team um and but we got back in touch um a few weeks later and then um because we were so far ahead and you know and in, in, in our editing um and we're about to finish um the film once we actually locked the film and you know got it ready for release um we We actually do sort of a process of walking the lead characters through the film, so they understand what's in it and um and can you know process it and and ask me questions you know I explain why I made certain choices and yeah matt um actually said when when you know I explained again, you know this is journalistic, you know there's a lot of he said she said in the film um but yeah, you know the I also explained the additional um, evidence and so on. And he actually said um, he he expected that, that we would have a journalistic approach, and he actually appreciates it. So that was was his reaction. We've also been in touch with the um, investigator and the prosecutor, and they are happy as well. They actually like the way um, they are represented in the film, that it shows their perspective. Um, The investigator actually um, wrote to us and said, um, you know, he thinks it could bring a certain closure to the victims' families as well. So, um, yeah, the the feedback so far from, you know, the participants has been good.
0: And what about the wider circles of people who became very convinced about Matt DeHart's stories and had written about it and blogged about it and tweeted about it, um, you know, some of which you document um, uh, in the film. Have you seen a, a different reckoning uh, with that story?
1: So, um, of course, the people who were, who were most closely involved in the Matt Dehart case were the investigative journalist Adrian Humphreys and then Professor Gabriela Coleman, who... Um, who really, you know, very strongly, um, you know, believed um, the family's perspective of the story, and it's also, I think, what's 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 important is that there are, you know, still like there's ambiguity, um, you know, and, and some shades of gray, you know. There's certainly, you know, the victims and the victims' families and the child pornography case, which you know we could, you know, really find um, very important, um, you know, new evidence. Um, but the FBI and the mistreatment in the jail, um, you know, that, you know, we have evidence for that as well. So it's 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 really it's you know, it is a very kind of complex case. Um, but you know, um yeah, the professor and the and 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 the journalist, I mean you can see on screen, they they were um quite impacted by the new information we were able to to get, um, and it took them quite a while to to process it as well. And I think Gabriela's soundbite, um, the professor's, is crucial when she says, you know. I
2: think we often establish stories and narratives with incomplete information. And then activists and advocates take a stance, um, just hoping that's the right thing. And then stories get written and Wikipedia pages get written. And yeah, it takes a life of its own as being truth. If we ever want to live in a world where we can trust the truth, it also means having to reevaluate evidence as new things come up and maybe change your mind.
1: Yeah, it's like so far, you know, we've had people who've screened it from the, you know, Hacking community from the activist communities, and what I find, um, you know, and I'm very happy that it comes across. Um, but what, what, what's been important to me that, is that people understand that um, this this case is complex, and that's what I, you know, I and there was, you know, for, for me this film has always been more than just about one individual case. It is, you know, it's a commentary on, on the way that information spreads and gets perpetuated and, and also simplified on social media and the internet and then how people repeat it. Like some of the articles that I read, it was like a game of telephone. The, it, it, the, the story changed when it was repeated. And, and, you know, what I want to challenge people with in this film is to, you know, take a step back and you know and 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 really you know dig through and watch a story that has more complexities that has you know still ambiguities and you know get comfortable with it and not and i didn't want to try and fill the gaps and the secrecy that's still in it with speculation and people you know this is like real life like not everyone is either hero or villain you know it's it, it there are and you know, we are used to these narratives, but human behavior and people and human actions, they are very complex and they are very contradictory, and multiple things can happen and be true and possible at the same time.
0: I want to thank Sonia Kenneback for speaking with me, and thanks to her producer, Enos Hoffman-Kana, for her help. Their film about the case of Matt DeHart, Enemies of the State, is now available on demand. So is their previous film, National Bird, about whistleblowers on the US military drone program. Their latest film, US versus reality winner, is currently rolling out at film festivals. Thanks to our team, series producer, Hannah Nordenswan and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Raphael Anahousen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. You can read our show notes and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.